Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Last month, Congress loudly debated the possible defunding of Planned Parenthood, an effort that failed to pass the U.S. Senate but galvanized advocates on both sides. Later in the program, we will talk about the controversy surrounding Planned Parenthood with advocates from both sides. But first, women have been getting routine mammograms since the 1980s as a tool to decrease the number of women dying from breast cancer. A campaign for public awareness led to a big jump. By 2010, over 70 percent of women had a mammogram in the last two-year period. But the American Cancer Society now says women don't need mammograms as young or as often. False positives, needless risk from radiation, and cost are a few of the reasons for these new guidelines. This isn't the first time new recommendations have been made that contradict the old. So what is a woman to believe? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. We'd love to have your questions for Dr. Anise Chagpar, who's director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. She's also one of the co-hosts of Yale Cancer Center Answers, which you can hear Sunday evenings on WNPR. Dr. Chagpar, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. First of all, explain the new guidelines and what exactly has changed. So this year, uh, the American Cancer Society formed a committee to really look at the evidence behind screening mammography. And I'm going to start by saying that the new recommendations are only for people at average risk. So if you've got a family history, you have a genetic mutation that puts you at increased risk, this does not apply to you. But in the people who are at average risk, the previous guidelines had a blanket statement that really said every woman over the age of 40 should be getting annual mammograms. But now when you really look at the data and you start parsing out who benefits the most at which age periods and by having mammograms how frequently, you start to see some nuances which have been incorporated into the new guidelines. So the new guidelines say that for women between the ages of 40 and 44, it should really be a personal choice. You should have the option of having an annual mammogram, but not necessarily so. There is an abundance of evidence that women benefit from annual mammograms after age 45 because that's when we find cancers in this younger population up until the age of about 54. After age 55, you want to be getting mammograms every two years. And I think that this really allays some of the guilt that women may have if they miss a mammogram, for example example. But we know that in the older population, the cancers that we find are really slow growing, so we don't need to get mammograms every year. And finally, the third piece that the American Cancer Society put in was that for women over the age of, uh, you know, getting into their 70s and 80s, there really is a lot less data, in fact, no randomized controlled trials for women over the age of 75 regarding the benefits of screening mammography. And so what they say is that you should continue to get your regular mammograms until such time as you're no longer in good health and or you do not have at least 10 years of expected life expectancy. So for the people who are now octogenarians in their 90s or even in their hundreds, um, they don't really need to get mammograms. Uh, at that point. 
all of these recommendations seem to be very sensible in a vacuum. But of course, as as we have been hearing about all throughout this week, and as you deal with constantly, new recommendations seem to come out often. And there are different organizations outside the American Cancer Society that have different recommendations on, on the plate even now. So I guess my next question for you is, why all of the differing recommendations? And, and should women really say, okay, now this is the definitive word, given that we might hear a change again in two years? Yeah, so each of these different organizations look at their data periodically. So it's been over 10 years since the American Cancer Society had looked at their guidelines. And this year, they really came out with a nice process whereby they formed a committee, looked at all of the evidence, and readjusted uh, their guidelines. Interestingly, these are actually are more in line with other guidelines that we know about. So for example, the United States Preventative Services Task Force um, had found just a few years ago that really the bulk of the data for screening mammography is in that 50 to 69-year-old period, screening every two years. And when we look at international data, whether it is from the UK or Canada or other parts of the industrialized world, these really seem to be the guidelines that permeate. So I think that while there are certainly some differences, and this really is a matter of uh, differences in terms of interpretation of the data and which data we include, um, they really do seem to be very much in line in the main. A lot of uh, these recommendations have to do with risk-benefit analysis, right? You're looking at the risks that women at various ages or with various histories might have of actually developing breast cancer, and you're weighing those against the risks posed by uh, radiation or other types of invasive procedures that might happen from a false positive. Can you talk about that risk-benefit analysis and how much that is a piece of this, doctor? Yeah, it really is a very big piece of the discussion now because it used to be that we did screening tests just because. And now we're really starting to say, because why? The whole purpose of screening mammography, like any screening test, is to reduce mortality from the disease. So remember that this isn't to prevent you from getting cancer. It's to allow you to find cancers early when they're the most treatable. But when you think about doing screening mammography on a population-wide basis, you really need need to weigh the risks and benefits because not everybody in the population is going to get breast cancer and yet all of them are going to be exposed to the risks of the test. So you want to look at a few things. The first is what is the incidence or the prevalence of this disease in various age groups? So for example, we know that breast cancer is very uncommon under the age of 45. And so um, really, that's why in that 40 to 45-year-old age group, it was really up to patients with regards to their personal preferences and values. Below age 40, there's really no need to have screening mammography in the average risk population because the incidence of the disease is so low. Now, on the flip side, you also want to look at the risks of the test itself. And you mentioned a few things that are important. The first is radiation dose. Now, I should say to people that the radiation dose with regards to mammography is not huge. So I don't want our listeners to say, because of the radiation, I'm never going to get a mammogram, because certainly there is a risk benefit there as well. But to get mammograms uh, on a very regular basis without an 
a significant increase in benefit needs to be looked at. More importantly, I think, uh, the American Cancer Society, like other uh, guideline-forming agencies, really were starting to look at, as you called it, the false positive rate, or what is often called overdiagnosis. And what this refers to is the idea that we can find a lot of cancers, small little cancers that would have never we would have never noticed before, we would have never felt before, and which really, even if left untreated, may never harm anybody. So in those people, we're finding these cancers, but they may not really make a difference. So it's overdiagnosis that can then lead to treatments which carry with them certain toxicities as well. So we want to really limit overdiagnosis, and we want to limit false positives, which is where we find something on mammogram which leads to more mammograms, ultrasounds, MRIs, biopsies, only to realize that this was nothing to begin with. Um, I just wanted to to quickly say we just got a few minutes left with you, and I wanted to get to a few other quick questions, and one of them has to do with a a thing that I think a lot of people are scared about right now, Doctor, which is as new guidelines like this come out and we're hearing, okay, women under 40, it maybe doesn't mean as much to get a a mammography, are health insurance companies going to drop this as as a covered thing? I mean, do we start to have changes in health insurance because of these new guidelines? Yeah, I think that's always a, a concern and certainly something that is a valid uh, concern for women. But remember that uh, even right now for average risk women, the previous guidelines were also for women over the age of 40. So in terms of insurance coverage, it really wouldn't be any different. Um, women under the age of 40 are going to get mammograms if they're at high risk, and your doctor will uh, help you to navigate uh, the situation with your insurance company. Does anything change? as far as women and self-examination? Because again, leading to false positives is one of the problems that you've pointed out. I know that that was controversial around these last guidelines in 2009. What can you tell women about breast self-exam? Yeah, so the data with regards to self-exam are really mixed. And by and large, we haven't seen a significant benefit with breast self-exam, and it has been associated with some patient anxiety. So people feel lumps and bumps in their breast, and they freak out a bit, as would be expected. And so right now, people say, you know what, if you feel comfortable doing a breast self-exam simply to get to know your own body better, that's great. But don't feel like that's something that you have to do. We have a a caller who wants to ask about thermography. There are other sorts of tests that are out there. I'm wondering if you can talk about things that might uh, displace mammography as a screening test for breast cancer at some point in the near future or even right now. Yeah, so certainly, you know, as research continues and we gain more and more technologies, there's always a possibility of new technologies uh, coming out that may be even better. Right now, however, there really isn't anything that tops mammography as the gold standard. Thermography, in particular, because you brought it up, um, is really not very sensitive, particularly in picking up small cancers and precancers like DCIS, um, which often show up as little calcifications on a mammogram. And so we know that even with things like uh, ultrasound, MRI, thermography, various other techniques, uh, PEM, we really haven't seen the benefit that we've seen with 
plain old mammograms. One thing that I am excited about, however, is improvements in mammography technology. So now we're beginning to see 3D mammography or tomosynthesis. And I think that this technology really does have the potential uh, to, to take over standard mammography. We just have a minute left, and I guess I'm wondering if you could leave our listeners with any final thoughts, because obviously this is something that's very important. People are probably trying to parse through a bunch of information, but if you were to leave people who are, are worried about these new guidelines and what it means, what, what thought would you leave with them, doctor? I would tell them that they need to know their breast cancer risk. That's the first thing that's important. And the second is to to get a mammogram according to guidelines. So yearly after the age of 45, every two years after the age of 55. And certainly if you feel something that is concerning to you, go and talk to your doctor. We're here to help. I I guess I'm, I'm wondering if you think that we are going to hear some changes in these guidelines coming up anytime soon, or if we can feel confident that this is something that we will we will have as the guidelines in America for breast cancer screening for about the next 10 years. Yeah, I think, you know, really, uh, there's been a lot of support for these guidelines and the evidence does back them. Of course, guidelines are always going to change with new evidence, but I think that these are pretty much here to stay at least for the, the next little bit. Dr. Anise Chagpar is director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. She is also one of the hosts of Yale Cancer Center Answers, which you can hear on Sunday evenings here on WNPR. Doctor, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. I really appreciate it. I think it helps our listeners out a lot. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Coming up next, we'll hear from both sides in the debate over federal funding for Planned Parenthood. That's next, Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Last month, Congress loudly debated the possible defunding of Planned Parenthood, an effort which failed to pass the U.S. Senate, but it galvanized advocates on both sides. Every bit of money that Planned Parenthood gets is already given to community health centers. Community health centers do everything Planned Parenthood does except for abortions. There's no reason for Planned Parenthood to get any federal money, and the things they are doing are unacceptable to a vast majority of people, pro-life or pro-choice. I simply cannot believe that in the year 2015, the United States Senate would be spending its time trying to defund women's health care centers. And let's be clear, it's not just Congress. This year alone, state legislators have passed more than 50 new restrictions on women's access to legal health care. The Republican vote to defund Planned Parenthood is just one more piece of a deliberate attack on women's rights. That's Kentucky Senator Rand Paul and Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, and that's pretty much the debate in a nutshell. Supporters of Planned Parenthood say that the Women's Health Organization does much more than just perform abortions, and it already doesn't use federal funding for that purpose. Opponents point to a controversial video showing Planned Parenthood staff discussing fetal tissue donations as impetus for the new defunding efforts, not to mention the advocates' overall rejection of any organization that provides abortion services. Now, just this May, a Gallup poll showed that 50 percent of Americans identify as pro-choice, 44 percent identify as pro-life. But the issue is more complex than can be outlined in just a single poll. Factors such as early or late-term abortion, reason for choosing abortion, the nature of the pregnancy itself, they all serve to make the terms pro-life and pro-choice 
a bit of an oversimplification of where most people stand on the issue. Today, where we live, we'll be talking with people on both sides of the Planned Parenthood debate about the future of women's health care in today's polarized social and political climate. You can join our conversation online at wnpr.org slash where we live. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Earlier this week, we held two conversations, the first with Judy Tabar, who's president and CEO of Planned Parenthood of Southern New England. Judy Tabar joins us by phone. Welcome to Where We Live. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me on the show today, John. I'm happy to be here. As I mentioned, of course, this polarized political culture seems to have put Planned Parenthood right in the crosshairs of this conversation. First of all, let's just talk about the services that Planned Parenthood provides that have nothing to do with providing abortions. What are they? So, John, at our health centers, we provide a wide range of services, including life-saving cancer screenings, birth control, testing and treatment for sexually transmitted infections, pregnancy testing, breast health services, um, annual exams, and counseling and sexual health education and information. That represents about 90% of what we do. We're really focused on prevention. Just very quickly, because in the earlier part of our program, we talk about uh, new guidelines around mammographies. Do your clinics provide mammography services for women? No, like almost every physician, we provide breast health screenings. And when by either history or exam, we determine that a woman needs a mammogram, we refer her to a radiologist. That's like most healthcare providers in this country. Once again, 90% of the services have nothing to do with abortion services. Another thing that is mentioned often by people in this entire debate is that they don't want any federal money going to provide abortion services. Can you talk about how those dollars are used or set aside uh, within Planned Parenthood organizations like the ones in Southern Connecticut so the people understand how the money is actually being spent when it comes from the federal government? No federal funds are used for abortion services, and that has been the case since forever, really. All of those federal funds go to provide the kinds of services that I just described, in particular for low-income women and young women. Our services are provided on a sliding fee scale, and no one is ever turned away. And so with the help of federal dollars, we're able to serve any woman, and actually man, who comes through our doors. So the federal dollars go directly to providing health care services, as you say. They don't provide for any of the abortion services. How much of your overall revenue comes from charging for abortion services? I don't have that number with me. But again, you know, 90 percent of our services are focused on prevention and um yeah, I, I just don't have that number with me. Yeah, and, and we've seen some numbers that say, depending on how it's calculated, abortion services account for somewhere between 15 to 37 percent of Planned Parenthood's annual non-governmental revenues. The reason I ask, honestly, Judy, is it's just it's something that's been raised to us by advocates on the other side. They say that uh, Planned Parenthood makes money on abortions this way, and then it takes in federal dollars. You've already said you don't use federal dollars for abortions, but they they often cite the amount of money that you make for charging for abortion services. That's the only reason I raised the question. Absolutely not. I mean, that we clearly do not use any, any federal funds for abortion. And part of our sources of revenue, in addition to federal funds, um, we charge on a sliding fee scale, We bill third-party payers, and then we also have generous supporters 
who believe in the mission of Planned Parenthood and make it possible for us to provide these services. You heard Rand Paul, the Kentucky senator, talking about community health centers. What he and other advocates, including those that we'll hear later on in our program, say is that these dollars that the federal government spends on Planned Parenthood could be spent in another way. They could be spent on organizations that provide already many of the same services Planned Parenthood does, but that don't provide any abortion services. What's your response to that argument? Well, first of all, we serve 64,000 patients in the state of Connecticut at our 17 health centers, and 80% of our health centers are in medically underserved areas or health professional shortage areas. So if we were no longer there and able to provide those services, many of those patients would have nowhere else to go. But in addition to the fact that they would have nowhere else to go, women count on us. Women and men, now 10% of our patients are men, but women trust Planned Parenthood. They've chosen to come to us for decades, and one in five women in this country has been to Planned Parenthood at some point in her lifetime for her health care. And, of course, one of the, the main issues here is things like family planning and contraceptive services. The, the the notion given by an awful lot of people on the other side of the debate is that they want to make the argument about abortion. An awful lot of what Planned Parenthood spends its time doing is trying to make sure that women have and men have the family planning resources necessary to avoid unwanted pregnancies. Yes. That is certainly the vast majority of what we do because in addition to, again, serving 64,000 patients here in the state of Connecticut with health care services, we are also focused on providing comprehensive, medically accurate sex education to young people. So we have a fleet of educators who are out in our communities and making sure that young people get the information they need to make good decisions about their health care. We're talking about Planned Parenthood with Judy Tabar, who's president and CEO of Planned Parenthood of Southern New England, who joins us by phone. Stand by for a second, Judy. I want to bring into the conversation Lucy Gelman. She's station manager at WNHHLP in New Haven and also a writer for the New Haven Independent. Lucy, welcome to our program. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning, John. We wanted to talk to you because you've written about Planned Parenthood as a reporter, and you actually wrote a very interesting blog piece uh, after you reported on uh, New Haven's Pink Out Day, a day in which uh, people came out in force to support Planned Parenthood. We, we were interested in your writing about this, Lucy, because you, you say out loud, you know, I'm a, an objective reporter. I'm not carrying signs and marching on behalf of Planned Parenthood, but you're, you're finding it hard to distance yourself from this very important uh, issue. Can you talk through that a little bit? Because it's an interesting thing for a, for a reporter to say, but it's, it certainly caught our attention. Yeah, absolutely. So just to really quickly clarify for listeners, there were two pieces I wrote about Planned Parenthood. The first was an article for the New Haven Independent, and that was largely data-driven with quotations from um, Judy as well as Gretchen Rafa, who is an amazing member of Planned Parenthood of Southern New England and Mayor Tony Harp in New Haven. The second was a blog post for I Love New Haven, which is um, sort of a photo or photo essay-driven blog. And in that, I talked about how, as a reporter, usually it's very easy for me to separate my personal and professional life if I'm covering something like the Board of Alders, city plan, city zoning, et cetera. That becomes almost impossible when it's something like Planned Parenthood, because I am also a 26-year-old woman, and I am a 26-year-old woman in a city that is majority-minority, and I have a lot of friends who are not insured in their professions and use Planned Parenthood for um, pap smears, 
for birth control, et cetera, et cetera. So this is something that's that's near to you and dear to the people who uh, surround you. It's a, it's an organization that you feel strongly about, it sounds. Very much, very, very strongly. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about, about what you've learned about the history of Planned Parenthood and, and how exactly it has uh, it has impacted women in this region specifically, Lucy. Planned Parenthood is the largest provider of reproductive health care to poor women in the United States. And in southern New England, that's especially important. As Judy said, almost 80% of Planned Parenthood's 16 medical health centers in southern New England are in underserved communities. The medical term for that is health professional shortage areas. What we're talking about in New England is largely black and brown communities. Historically and also in our current moment, that becomes not only um, sort of a healthcare issue, but a civil rights issue. And when we're talking about defunding those, we're also talking about taking health care away from some of the women who need it most. Judy, I'm wondering if you can pick up a, a bit on this on this history, because at a certain point in the story of Planned Parenthood, it became entangled with the issue of abortion, which then, of course, became maybe the most divisive issue in all of American society. I, I'm wondering how and when that happened, because of all the other things that you provide, it seems for many people Planned Parenthood is about one thing, but as you and Lucy are pointing out, it is about many other things. You know, perhaps the place to start, John, is to talk about the Griswold versus Connecticut decision, the Supreme Court decision that we're actually celebrating the 50th anniversary of this year. And that made it legal for married couples, married women in the state of Connecticut and across this country to use birth control. The right to privacy was included in that decision, and that laid the foundation for the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973, which made it abortion safe and legal in this country. So I think Planned Parenthood is going to be celebrating our 100th anniversary next year. We began as a a movement about birth control and continue as one to this day. At the same time, we believe it's incredibly important for women to be able to make their own decisions, which are generally very deeply personal and very complex about their pregnancies. And Lucy, I'm wondering if you can pick up on that, because I asked Judy already about the notion of shifting funding to other sorts of organizations, community health centers and the like, that would be able to, in their minds, provide many of the same services that Planned Parenthood provides. How how does that strike you as someone who's a supporter of, of the organization? Oh, gosh. Well, it, it was really upsetting, John, because if you look at a community like New Haven, but then if you look at the 16 satellites of Planned Parenthood Southern New England, which are sort of scattered around Southern New England, um, and, and then go back to the soundbite that you had from Rand Paul. It really infuriates me because, of course, what Mr. Paul is leaving out of the equation is that many of those communities don't have another place to allocate funds. So when he says, well, those funds could just be allocated to another community health center, in theory, sure, let's take that at face value. But in practice, that simply isn't correct. Planned Parenthood provides comprehensive care that women trust on a level that no other health center or no other health organization has been able to match to date. That's pretty extraordinary if you think about the history of the organization. This idea of trust is, I think, is very important. I mean, as we try to pull apart the health care system that we have today, 
yes, we have through Obamacare many more people having access to health care of some sort, but I think we all have the experience of searching around for a primary care physician that is on our insurance and maybe only getting to spend a few minutes a year with someone who might glance at our charts. What you're talking about, Lucy, is an organization that allows women to have a trustworthy place to go at the most critical time in their entire lives. And that's something that I think in the in the current healthcare model probably doesn't exist anywhere else. I think that's true. And if I may, John, I, I think there's still a huge stigma around not just abortion and, and abortion-related services, but women seeking health care for things like STI testing. I think women face challenges when, when they're trying to find services related to reproductive health care. There's an assumption that somehow they haven't taken adequate care of themselves or something is inherently wrong with them or they've made a mistake. And the truth of the matter is things like STIs happen. They happen to white upper middle class women and men. They happen to people who are economically disadvantaged. An infection or a disease is not going to discriminate based on the color of your skin or your salary. And Planned Parenthood is there for women and for men when they critically need it most. We're talking with Lucy Gelman. She's station manager at WNHHLP in New Haven and also a writer for the New Haven Independent. She's written about Planned Parenthood both on a blog and also for the New Haven Independent. Uh, Judy Tabar is president and CEO of Planned Parenthood of Southern New England. This is where we live. Judy, I think it's fair to say we probably wouldn't be having this conversation either on the program right now or in America today if it weren't for the video that showed Planned Parenthood workers talking about fetal tissue sales. Since then, the organization has said it it will no longer benefit from these sales, but fetal tissue, of course, goes to research, which is then used to help, hopefully, people live longer, healthier, happier lives. I guess I'm wondering, from your perspective, how damaging this video was to your cause, or whether or not we're just sort of looking at the entire thing wrong as we engage in this controversy around that video? Well, I think it's important to know that the videos have been widely discredited, and so have the false and outrageous claims behind them. A team of experts actually reviewed the videos, forensic experts, and determined that they were highly edited and distorted and totally misrepresented what happened. So I I just wanted to make sure that that was clear. Every poll that's been done in the past two months since all of this began has continued to show that people support Planned Parenthood and do not want us defunded, and they think these services are critical. And I think what we know is this is really not about fetal tissue. This is really about an effort to ban abortion and to roll back access to women's health care services. Just to pick up on on that notion, though, is that while this isn't about fetal tissue, the the reason why fetal tissue is made available for research is in hopes that researchers would be able to find cures to really intractable diseases that plague our society and hopefully would, would save people down the road. It's, I suppose, politically dangerous to talk too terribly much about this issue, Judy, but it seems important to note that an awful lot of researchers in the medical community rely on fetal tissue of some sort in order to make research breakthroughs. 
Yeah, you know, there was an open letter recently signed by 48 different research institutions across the country really talking about the importance of this kind of research and really wanting people to understand how important it is for various conditions to better understand why they happen and how they can be treated. A last thing for for both of you, in in the last bit of our conversation that we're going to hear next, in which we talk with a few people who oppose the federal funding of Planned Parenthood, we we did talk a little bit about the terms that we use, pro-life and pro-choice, and the tenor of this debate overall, because at the end, it is all about abortion. This is really what we're talking about here. I'll ask you first, Judy, do you think that there is ever a time in your career doing this work in which we can have a more rational, reasonable debate uh, between people who disagree on a, on a fundamental issue like abortion, but may be able to work towards some common sense compromises and policy that, that could actually make sense? I've been at this a long time, and uh, over the course of my career, I have seen that the labels pro-life and pro-choice don't really reflect the conversation that we're having in America today. Those labels just don't reflect the complexity of how most people think and feel about abortion. And so instead of trying to put people in categories, I think we should respect the real-life decisions women and their families face every day. So at first, I just wanted to address the labels. I think secondly, the common ground is really about prevention. It's about access to health care. It's about access to information. And Planned Parenthood does more every single day to reduce the need for abortion. So I believe that's where the common ground is. If we can focus on prevention, then we'll have less need for abortion. Lucy, how about you? Responding to the labels very quickly, I personally, in, in my own life, use pro-choice and anti-choice only because pro-life, the, the label pro-life really rattles me. It somehow insinuates or, or implies that I, as a person, am not for life and for the sanctity of life, when in fact having an abortion is sometimes the most compassionate decision that a woman can make for herself and for her family. The second issue, as far as whether we will be able to find a middle ground and really get into the nitty-gritty of women's health, because that is what we should be talking about at the current moment. I don't know, John. I would really like to be able to say yes, but I think sometimes when we debate abortion, what we are really debating is people, and especially men, who have legislative power and are interested in controlling women's bodies. I also think that very often we are not talking about the fact that this is a race and class issue. And in New Haven, race is often a euphemism for brown and for black. That is something that we need to be more honest about as a society, and it's something that we need to be more honest about at a legislative level as well. Lucy Gelman is station manager at WNHHLP in New Haven. She's a writer for the New Haven Independent. Lucy, always good to talk with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. Thanks to Judy Tabar, who's president and CEO of Planned Parenthood of Southern New England. Judy, thank you for your time. Thank you so much, John, for having me on the show today. Coming up, two voices who oppose federal funding for Planned Parenthood. This is where we live.
This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's show, quantum information science now has a home in New Haven, Connecticut. On tomorrow's Where We Live, we'll learn about the Yale Quantum Institute, which opens this week. Hopefully they can explain it to me. We'll also take a look at some research on long-distance runners and find out about a new study at Yale about brain cancer. Hope you can join us. We're talking today about the debate taking place over Planned Parenthood and the services they provide. We've already heard from those who support the organization. We now want to shift gears and get the perspective of those on the other side. Opponents of federal funding for the Women's Health Agency say they don't want their dollars going to support abortions or the sale of fetal tissue from abortions. Planned Parenthood, for its part, has long said that federal dollars that it gets don't go to abortion services, and it has stopped taking money for fetal tissue provided for medical research. The people we'll hear from in this segment don't buy those arguments, and they want the federal money instead to go to community-based health centers that do other things that Planned Parenthood does for women without performing abortions. I spoke with my guests on Tuesday of this week. Ellen Cavallo is director of Carolyn's Place, a pregnancy care center in Waterbury, Connecticut. Charles Camosi is associate professor of Christian ethics at Fordham University in New York and a board member of Democrats for Life. He's author of Beyond the Abortion Wars, A Way Forward for a New Generation. Welcome to Where We Live. Thank you for having me. Hello. First of all, Charles, I'd like to start with you. We've heard an awful lot about Planned Parenthood and the effort to defund it in Washington. Does it make sense to defund an organization because of the controversy over about just one of many, many practices, one of many, many things that it does for women? While it is doing lots of other things, abortion is very central to what it does. And for many, many people, they would prefer that those other good things that they do are done by nonviolent health care centers. So the argument of most people I talk to is not just to defund Planned Parenthood, but to take that money and give it to federally certified community health centers, which actually outnumber Planned Parenthood clinics more than 10 to 1. And they actually do broad-based health care. They do primary care. They actually do mammograms, something that Planned Parenthood doesn't do. So that's what I think that we ought to focus on, is how can we get this money to poor women who need it for their health care, but do it in a way that, that is nonviolent, that doesn't do the violent practices that Planned Parenthood does. Part of the the argument, I think, made by supporters of Planned Parenthood is though because they provide this other range of services, uh, AIDS testing, contraceptive, and other types of fam- family planning, uh, physicals, that sort of thing, that they're able to provide a wide range of services for women that maybe other abortion providers wouldn't. What do you say to that argument? It's not very persuasive. So, first of all, Planned Parenthood doesn't do anything that primary clinics do at a very basic primary care level, for instance. So the myth that Planned Parenthood does mammograms is widespread, but uh, they don't do mammograms. The myth that Planned Parenthood does primary care is widespread, but almost no Planned Parenthood clinics do primary care. The argument that people make is let's give it to clinics that actually do broad-based services. Let's do it to federally certified primary care clinics and let's do all the things that people agree Planned Parenthood does well, but let's do it, give it to clinics that are nonviolent, that don't do these violent practices that so many Americans find deeply offensive. I want to bring Ellen Cavallo into the conversation. Can you talk about the services that we understand that Planned Parenthood provides at its clinics that go beyond abortions, obviously, abstinence uh, planning, contraceptive planning, AIDS testing, that sort of thing? 
Could you talk about those up against some of what you provide at Carolyn's Place and give us a little side-by-side example? At Carolyn's Place, everything we do is free and confidential, and we don't take state or federal funding. We just celebrated our 23rd year. And I think rather than talk about Planned Parenthood, I'd like to talk about the positives that we, we do for the community. When a young woman comes in for a pregnancy test and it's positive, she has three options, abortion, parenting, or adoption. And I think to be able to make an informed choice, she needs to hear the truth. So we talk about abortion as a surgical procedure. We talk about some of the uh, fallout, especially the emotional fallout, because I see women post-abortively. And we talk about adoption, and we talk about single parenting. And once we've told the medically-based facts and we've told them in love, um, then the choice is up to that person. So I really feel very often that we're more pro-choice than the pro-choice people because we can't make people's choices for them. We can give them good advice. We can give them um, support, which we do. And I think that's, that's a real important issue is the differences. In the te- I think, John, one of the saddest things I've ever heard in the 23 years is someone who comes back to us post-abortively who says, I didn't know. And when they leave Carolyn's place, they will know. They can't say that. They'll make up their own minds. And we always tell people when the appointments are over that no matter what their choice is, our door is never shut. If you don't mind me asking, though, I will say that there have been some reports of clinics that provide the services that you provide telling women things about places like Planned Parenthood that simply, frankly, aren't true about the about the procedures that they may get. And I guess I'm wondering if you can talk about that because obviously you want women to get the best possible biggest picture of what services are available, but Absolutely. that that I was would assume wouldn't mean denigrating other services or the where the quality of care at facilities like Planned Parenthood. We actually that's not something we do. We don't ever denigrate another agency or organization. I would say that what we try to do is tell people what we are good at. Our theme really is that no woman should ever face pregnancy alone. And I think uh, anyone who's gone through labor and delivery would agree with that. So what we say to someone who's coming in who might be on the fence, and most of the women that I've seen uh, over the years that who are on the fence are there because they have no support. Um, they really don't know what to do. And um, they've either lost the boyfriend or they're in school. There, there's a variety. The, the stories I've heard in 23 years, I've met courageous young men and women over those 23 years. So once I've listened, and we're very good at listening, um, and we listen with our heads and our hearts. And once we've listened, and we can sort of figure out exactly what the problems are, because it's not just the pregnancy. It's multifaceted. Someone said once that it's kind of like having a tornado come in and sit down in your office. And um, sometimes there's anger. Sometimes there's sadness. There are always tears. And listening to that and saying to someone, you know what, I can't fix everything, but I can be there, and I can walk with you for as long as you want us to walk. And that's pretty much what we do. We have a crisis line that's answered 24-7 by real people, trained uh, women, volunteers, and that's been for 23 years. And when you get a call at 3 in the morning, someone on the other end is say, oh, you're real. You're alive. And that's very helpful because that's when usually we get the calls from the kids because mom and dad are in bed. We have programs. We have a Earn While You Learn program, which is childbirth preparation and parenting. And when you're through with that, you get a crib, a car seat, and whatever you need for the baby. 
But it's a wonderful way to build community, too, because you have a group of young men and women. We have dads coming as well as moms who are in the same boat, as it were. Charles, I'm wondering what what you see is the role of centers like the one that Ellen runs here in Waterbury, Connecticut, in this entire matrix of services for women across America. I think it's vitally important, and that really signals an area of common ground that I think people who are pro-life or pro-choice, and I think the arguments are way more complex, but that's just sort of the language we have to work with. It's common ground, isn't it, for pro-lifers to support organizations like hers, and it's common ground for pro-choicers to support organizations like hers, right? If we're really pro-choice, then we're for giving women the resources to choose life as well as to choose abortion. And of course, pro-lifers are very interested in this sometimes gets hit in our right-left Republican-Democrat political binary, but almost all pro-lifers I know are very interested in making sure that women are taken care of before, during, and after their pregnancy, and that the children are taken care of before, during, and after the pregnancy and birth. So it's really an astonishing area of common ground between people who actually disagree on abortion. Let's make sure that women and children have the necessary resources But it gets lost, unfortunately, in in what in my book I call the abortion wars, which is this right versus left fight to the death, apparently. But what's most important about what you just said is that both pro-lifers and pro-choicers should be able to agree on it. Charles talked about finding ground, Ellen, on this issue. And I guess I'm wondering if you can talk about that a little bit, about the possibility of not having the type of political debate that we've had over abortion and over services for women, and finding some way to bring sides together. Is this something that you and your colleagues think about, talk about often? Very often. It's not a matter, of course, it's a matter of legality. But for us, I think it's a matter of heart. And I think when people have changes of heart, um, the law isn't going to, and I don't mean matter, laws always matter, but it won't matter as much because it will be unconscionable to kill your child. And I think... Very often when we do health fairs and things like that, we're usually put for some reason next to the Planned Parenthood table, and it gives us a chance to dialogue. And I have always thought that the people that I've spoken with really do believe in what they're doing, and they don't, they're not at the hierarchy of the place. They're, they're on the ground level working in the clinic. And I think it's a matter of, well, if I can use a biblical term, a veil being over people's eyes. They don't really understand the consequence. They don't understand exactly what they're doing. I think for most of us, human life is a tremendous gift, always has been. And when we think of things like the Holocaust and things like that, our nation really does need to rethink how we feel about human life. Let me ask you about that a little bit more because I think it's interesting, this, you know, this notion that you, know, you would be at some sort of a health fair next to Planned Parenthood folks and dialogue with them quite a bit. I know an awful lot of care providers of all types, doctors, nurses, all throughout the healthcare system. And I think that in- including people who work for Planned Parenthood, I think that they would probably take you- your notion that they don't understand everything as being incredibly offensive. I mean, I think to them what they probably would, would say is, well, I'm, I'm trying to provide uh, services for women that include this thing that you don't approve of. 
but that is legal in America, that is that is as legal as anything else that we can do that that is out there. I, I guess I'm wondering how you how you would respond. The only to that. thing I can say to that is that something legal isn't always correct. Slavery was legal. And we outgrew that, thank God. And we recognized that African-American person was a human being with a soul. And so just because something's legal doesn't make it right. You, you've written, Charles, about uh, a, a possibility to bring sides together around the issue of paid family leave. And this is something that I find fascinating because of all of the years of debate that we've had in Washington over abortion, the fact that we don't talk more often about issues like paid family leave is is something that seems uh, somewhat astounding. I'm wondering if you can talk about how you see this as an opening for the two sides to come together. Well, I worked with an organization called Democrats for Life. I'm on the board of Democrats for Life, and we have this campaign called Hashtag Choose Both, where we're trying to say this is not a war of those who support women against those who support babies. This is a really complicated issue where we're trying to bring the issues of both together. And Americans, though they generally want abortion to remain legal in some form, are deeply uncomfortable with abortion, deeply uncomfortable with it. It's not like the legality of smoking pot or something like that. This is They're deeply uncomfortable with abortion. And that's why over 12 weeks, 73% of Americans would like to see abortion restricted beyond 12 weeks. And as you may know, we tried to pass a 20-week ban that's called the Pain Capable Act, after which a plurality of biologists think that the prenatal child can feel pain. And it wasn't going anywhere, in part because, unfortunately, and I say this as a non-Republican, Democrats really, uh, the Democrat leadership, which is really connected with Planned Parenthood and, and the National Abortion Rights and Action League, just basically said that you can't vote for this no matter what. We tried to work against that by saying, well, what if we attached mandatory paid pregnancy leave and maternity leave and family leave to the bill. And it's actually an embarrassment for our country. We're the only industrialized nation in the world that doesn't have some form of guaranteed paid family leave. Uh, we're also one of, one of only eight countries which allows abortion on demand past 20 weeks. So doing both actually would really get us more in line with the civilized world and actually much more in line with public opinion and actually have a symbiotic relationship with each other. The more you restrict abortion, the more burden there is on women, let's lessen some of that burden on women. And we ought to do much more than this, but couldn't we at least do this? And the proposal, though wildly popular for Americans, was defeated in our incoherent, binary, polarized political system. Ellen and Charles, thank you both for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. My pleasure. Our program is produced by Josh Nalea, with help from Lydia Brown, Tucker Ives, and Betsy Kaplan. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Our digital editor is Heather Brandon, and the executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Talarski. Continue this conversation online. Go to our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us.